Welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well. And of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. One quick reminder up front, our next show will be a mega episode covering SummerSlam 1998 and the episode of Monday Night Raw, which airs after it, and the special guest co-host for that episode will be William Rankin from the New Blood Rising podcast. William previously joined the Raw Attitude podcast for episode number 23, so I'm very much looking forward to having him back on the show. There are some great moments coming up, and I can't wait to hear what William has to say about them, so stay tuned. And of course, if you haven't done so already, be sure to subscribe to the New Blood Rising podcast, where they are currently covering every ECW pay-per-view of all time. Alright, so, with that being said, let's get into Monday Night Raw. It is Monday, August 24th, 1998, and we are live from the Core State Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in front of a sold-out crowd who are ready for the go-home episode of Raw Before SummerSlam. A whole shitload of WWF slash WWE events have occurred in this same building, but some of the most noteworthy ones include WrestleMania 15, the 2004 Royal Rumble, can't remember who won that one, the 2015 Royal Rumble, and the legendarily terrible King of the Ring 1995, among many others. We open the show with a shot of The Undertaker emerging from his locker room, and then Kane comes out right behind him. After eight weeks of speculation as to whether or not the two brothers are in cahoots, this seems to finally confirm that suspicion. From there, we cue up the opening credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Some of the entertaining signs tonight include Bill Goldberg is Whoopi's husband, Kurgan equals ratings, Mom, change Britney's diaper, Bomb Atlanta again, that's pretty harsh, and Happy Birthday McMahon, you silly bastard. And to that fan's credit, she was actually correct. This episode of Raw did indeed air on the chairman's 53rd birthday, so kudos to her for doing her homework. After the crowd scan, the lights go out, The Undertaker's theme music plays, and yes, for the very first time, The Undertaker and Kane are together, walking down to the ring next to each other. Or, as Jim Ross puts it, Well, hey, even the greatest commentators can have an off moment, I suppose. To make things even more intriguing, once both brothers enter the ring, the camera pans out to show us that the Hell in a Cell cage is hanging above them. I'm not exactly sure why, since no Hell in a Cell match is booked for SummerSlam, but perhaps we shall find out. Before The Undertaker and Kane can explain their alliance, however, birthday boy Vince McMahon heads to the ring. Vince begins by saying it's about time that both men, quote, came out of the casket and admitted that they were working together, and of course he takes the opportunity to say, I told you so, since he has been beating that drum for weeks. Vince says he has no doubt that The Undertaker will defeat Stone Cold Steve Austin for the WWF Championship this Sunday, now that he has Kane by his side, but once Taker is crowned the WWF Champion, he's going to need Mr. McMahon by his side. And so, Vince then proceeds to ask The Undertaker one very important question. Will he be a friend to Vince? or a foe. The chairman then says that Taker has until the end of the night to provide him with an answer. After he finishes speaking, however, Paul Bearer starts walking to the ring, and he appears to be quite sad. Bearer then proceeds to make an emotional, screechy plea to Kane.
Yes, that's right. Kane turns his back on his father, Paul Bearer, and allows The Undertaker to start beating the crap out of him. However, Kane's tag team partner, Mankind, then comes to the ring, presumably to help out Bearer. Instead, however, Mankind simply turns his back on The Undertaker and holds his arms in the air, which allows Taker to start beating on him, too. Surprisingly, Kane also starts beating on Mankind, which is a bit odd because, as you may remember... Kane and Mankind are the reigning WWF Tag Team Champions, dysfunctional to say the least. In a really cool moment, Kane then picks up Mankind into the tombstone position, and The Undertaker comes off the top rope, where he then proceeds to spike Mick Foley onto the canvas. In case you're wondering why The Undertaker and Kane never made the spike tombstone a part of their arsenal, well, I'm assuming the reason why is because it looks incredibly fucking dangerous. Yikes. Vince McMahon then gets back on the mic and reminds The Undertaker that there is only one more person standing in the way of Taker becoming the WWF champion, and that would be Stone Cold Steve Austin. Sure enough, once Vince says that, Austin's music plays and he enters at the top of the ramp. However, before he can walk any further, a wall of fire shoots up from the stage, causing Stone Cold to stop in his tracks. Austin has a microphone, and, surprisingly, he agrees that he won't have much of a chance against both The Undertaker and Kane if they were to team up at SummerSlam. With that in mind, he says they had better watch their backs, because tonight, he plans on making sure that one of them won't make it to this Sunday. And that's the bottom line, because Stone Cold said so. And with that, our go-home episode of Raw before SummerSlam is underway. Quite the start, to say the least. We then go to our first commercial break of the evening, and when we return, we see footage of Mankind being put on a stretcher and loaded into an ambulance. The last time we saw Foley in that same situation was after he got thrown off the top of Hell in a Cell at King of the Ring, and he got right back up after he was put on the stretcher. So let's just say I get the impression that one spike tombstone might not be enough to keep Foley down for the entire night. Call me crazy. And now we go to our first match of the evening, and holy shit, they're actually doing it. It's Ken Shamrock versus Dan the Beast Severn. After teasing it for several months, we finally get this match on Raw, instead of, you know, on pay-per-view, where it would make much more sense, but oh well. The match actually begins with both guys seemingly trying to tap into their MMA roots, as there were several double-leg takedown attempts, as well as some leg grapevines, but ultimately they just ended up rolling around on the mat until one of them reached the ropes. After that, they proceeded to have a pretty back-and-forth wrestling match, but not for very long. With Shamrock down on the mat, Severn distracted referee Tim White, which allowed Owen Hart to run down to ringside and start pummeling Shamrock. Owen actually rolled into the ring and put Shamrock into the Dragon Sleeper, and Tim White finally turned around to see what was going on, so Shamrock was awarded the victory by disqualification after only 2 minutes and 53 seconds. Not exactly the epic encounter between the two that I was hoping for. Owen continued to lock in the Dragon Sleeper on Shamrock as Severn cheered him on, so Steve Blackman ran down to the ring and hit Severn with a bicycle kick. Owen then released the hold and rolled out of the ring as Blackman yelled at him, Severn and Owen then retreated up the ramp, and Shamrock seemingly wanted to go after both of them, so Blackman attempted to restrain Shamrock and calm him down. That proved to be a bad idea, though, as Shamrock then snapped and hit Blackman with a belly-to-belly suplex. 
However, Blackman only sold it for a couple seconds before he then got up and hit Shamrock with a belly-to-belly suplex of his own. WWF officials finally entered the ring and separated them, but it appears that Shamrock's insanity has resulted in him alienating himself even from the people who are trying to befriend him. And to further prove the point that he's crazy, Shamrock then heads outside the ring and starts headbutting the steel steps. You know, I'm not sure if Shamrock actually is a lunatic, but he certainly plays a convincing one on TV. Perhaps he's a method actor. After that craziness ends, we then cut backstage for more craziness, as we see that two paramedics have been laid out on the ground, and Mankind is pushing a stretcher around the arena. Clearly, he didn't feel like taking a ride in an ambulance tonight. And sure enough, when we return from commercial, we see that Mankind is essentially using the stretcher as a surfboard with wheels as he's lying face down on it and rolling himself down the ramp before crashing into the side of the ring. It's pretty hilarious to watch, and you can hear the fans pop loudly for it. Remember, we're in Philadelphia tonight, and Mick Foley developed quite a following among the Philly fans for his time spent in ECW. Foley rolls into the ring, and we see that he's brought a bag with him, and yes, it's that very same bag from King of the Ring, which contains a whole shitload of thumbtacks. A stagehand gives a mic to him, and then he says this. So, it was cahoots all along. A good scum cub scout should always be prepared, and oh, my warm-hearted cub scout leader... Mr. McMahon, he warned me Kane was no good, and I tried to believe it wasn't so. And now that it is, well, Mr. McMahon has offered me my chance at redemption, and redemption lies right above my head. Because Vince McMahon knows that when Kane and Mankind are locked inside the hell in the cell, that I'm going to, I'm, well, I'm going to get my ass kicked, aren't I? What kind of an idiot would step into the same cell match that nearly cost him his life? Well, Philadelphia, you're looking at that idiot right now. a plan and it does not involve stepping inside that ring no just like hell in the cell at king of the ring tonight mankind is gonna walk up to the top of the cage oh no no well he'll end it there then this he must have a death if i can put kane through that cage or off that cage well i got a surprise for that big burnt bastard seven thousand thumbtacks uh-uh are going to turn him into the world's largest pin cushion. So Philadelphia, if this all goes my way, why, we're going to make a little bit of history. And if uh, things take a turn for the worse, well, by God, it wouldn't be the first time I've had my ass kicked in Philadelphia. And either way, truly do not give a damn so Kane later tonight I'll see you in hell have a nice day one little detail that you couldn't tell from listening to that promo is that toward the end of it Foley actually took one of the thumbtacks and stuck it into the side of his head so I guess what I'm saying is he's in the proper mindset But there you have it, tonight in Philadelphia, Mankind will step back inside of Hell in a Cell, or on top of it, to do battle with his own tag team partner. What type of carnage will be unleashed? We shall see. Up next, Sable heads to the ring to act as the announcer for Kurgan, because that's what she has somehow been reduced to over the past few weeks for some reason. Kurgan is accompanied to the ring by Golga, Giant Silva, and Luna Vachon, and his opponent tonight will be Mark Merrow, who is surprisingly not accompanied by Jacqueline. Before the match, Merrow grabs a mic and says that if Kurgan has any guts, he will tell all of the other, quote, freaks to head backstage so they can fight one-on-one. And Kurgan actually does agree to that stipulation, so the oddities do indeed venture back to the locker room. 
but Sable sticks around at ringside because I guess she doesn't consider herself to be a freak. Interesting. And as it turns out, sticking around at ringside proves to be a bad idea for Sable because only about a minute and a half into the match, a random fan hops the guardrail and starts beating the crap out of her. The fan is obviously Jacqueline, but for some reason, she felt the need to disguise herself by wearing a jacket, warm-up pants, and a Rastafarian hat complete with fake dreadlocks built into it. And no, I'm not making that up. Jacqueline apparently thought that dressing herself up as Bob Marley would be a brilliant idea. The main question I have here is, why did Jacqueline need to disguise herself at all? Hypothetically, wouldn't security guards be 100 times more likely to intervene if they thought a fan had jumped the guardrail, as opposed to knowing that it was actually a contracted wrestler? Suddenly, I can feel myself developing a brain tumor, so I'll just move on. With Kurgan distracted by Kofi Kingston, I mean Jacqueline, Mark Merrow used that opportunity to hit Kurgan with a low blow, but it was right in front of the referee, so Merrow was disqualified. Merrow and Jackie then ran off through the crowd as the oddities returned to ringside to help out Sable. And once again, I must ask the question, who did Sable piss off to get relegated to hanging out with the oddities? Mere weeks ago, she was feuding with Vince McMahon, the top heel in the company, and now she's dancing with jobbers, poorly, might I add, with no real explanation whatsoever. Brock, if you're listening to this right now on your farm in Saskatchewan, please ask Sable that question for me. We then cut backstage where X-Pac tells a cameraman to follow him into the locker room. He tells us he's going to show us how he ribs other wrestlers, and he comes across a pair of cowboy boots. He then turns his back to us, and we hear some sound effects, so yes, apparently, Pac is pissing in someone's boots. Given his real-life reputation, frankly, I'm a little surprised that we didn't see him bend over and fill both boots with some colon confetti, but that's another story entirely. When we go back to the arena, it's time for our next match, the New Age Outlaws versus Southern Justice. However, while the Outlaws are making their entrance, we can hear that Hawk has joined the commentary team, and yet again, he's completely shit-faced. And of course, because this is a Vince Russo angle, we find a way to reference the fact that wrestling is fake during a wrestling show. Hawk, what are you doing here? I'll just come down to do it, help you out with all the color dysentery. Dysentery? Yeah. Is your wife still got the belt? My wife doesn't wrestle. Oh. Hey, Jerry, you remember in 86 or so at the Mid-South Coliseum and he said, man, don't sell the pile driver, and I did. It was great. In case you're wondering, at the end of that clip, I think Jerry Lawler says, Kizut the Mizike, as though he was a goddamn carny. Well, okay, I guess the wrestling industry is basically a traveling carnival anyway, but still, you get the idea. The point is that we're still continuing with this angle of Hawk being a complete drunk, and this time, to further convince us that this is the real deal, they're actually having him appear to break kayfabe and talk about selling. Unfortunately, whereas before they were going for tragic realism, having Hawk say stupid shit like color dysentery is just making him seem like a goofy punchline instead. Either way, it's R.I.P. for L.O.D. Anyway, right as the Outlaws Southern Justice match is about to begin, Jeff Jarrett heads down to ringside, and we can see that he's only wearing his socks, so presumably we now know that it was his boots that X-Pac was pissing in. Jarrett grabs a mic from a stagehand, but amusingly, the mic is not turned on, so he cuts a quick promo that no one can hear. From there, he walks over to the commentary table and takes the headset off of Hawk, and he demands that X-Pac come to the ring right now. At this point, the Outlaws' Southern Justice match basically becomes a complete afterthought, and the focus is almost entirely on Jarrett, as he keeps telling Jim Ross not to piss him off, he threatens the cameraman several times for filming his bootless feet, and he tells the world he's going to shave X-Pac bald this Sunday at SummerSlam. At one point, Mark Canterbury went over to check on Jarrett, which ended up distracting the referee for some reason. Billy Gunn then snuck into the ring and hit Dennis Knight with a pile driver. When the ref turned around, the road dog pinned Knight, and that was enough to score the three count for the Outlaws in a match which was almost completely ignored by the production team. After the match, despite Double J's warnings, the cameraman did indeed once again film Jarrett's feet. From there, Double J started attacking him, and then he pulled out an electric razor. 
Southern Justice held the cameraman, and Jarrett then proceeded to shave his head. And to the camera guy's credit, this did come off as pretty brutal, because he was squealing like a little bitch the entire time and begging Jarrett to stop. Meanwhile, over on Nitro, Brutus Beefcake was presumably pouting over the fact that someone had stolen his gimmick. After a commercial break, it is now time for the Hell in a Cell match, Kane versus Mankind, in a battle of the reigning WWF Tag Team Champions. Once again, when Kane heads to the ring, he's accompanied by The Undertaker, so that would appear to stack the deck for Mankind. Once Foley gets to the ring, he actually attempts to start climbing the side of the cage, but several referees grab him and pull him back down. Foley then begins assaulting the refs, but they continue to pull him back when he attempts to climb again. Kane then uses this opportunity to walk over to Foley, but he ends up paying for that idea when Foley slams the cage door into his face. From there, Foley walks over to the other side of the ring near the commentary table and grabs a chair. He attempts to throw the chair up to the top of the cage on two separate occasions, but... Unfortunately for Foley, he can't get the distance on either throw, so the chair falls onto the commentary table. Oops. Foley decides to give up on that idea, and then he starts climbing up the side of the cage. However, as he begins climbing, the Undertaker climbs with him. Taker grabs Foley by his shirt and yanks it, and that causes Mick to fall off the side of the cage and through the Spanish announce table. That fall was probably only about a five-foot drop, but I did go back and replay it a few times, and it appeared that Foley had a pretty rough landing. It looked like his ass skimmed the edge of the table, but his back and head landed on the concrete, and that can't feel good. From there, Kane picked up Foley, and both men ended up entering the cage itself, where referee Earl Hebner then chained the door shut, locking both men inside, but also locking the Undertaker out of the cage. After brutally hitting Foley with the steel steps on multiple occasions, Kane then took a page out of his brother's book by leaping over the top rope and landing on Mankind. Very impressive. Kane then rolled back into the ring, but instead of following him, Foley actually went under the ring. When he re-emerged, he was holding a steel chair as well as his bag of thumbtacks. Foley lifted the chair and absolutely leveled Kane with it, knocking him to his knees. Foley then started throwing the thumbtacks onto the ground, but Kane snuck up on Foley and clocked him, causing him to land chest-first into the thumbtacks. Owie. However, Foley regained the momentum, and in a bit of a strange spot, he picked up Kane for his trademark pulling pile driver. When he hit Kane with it, Kane's momentum actually caused him to roll over Foley and land ass-first right in the thumbtacks. I know that had to have sucked for him, but the image of Kane with hundreds of thumbtacks nowhere else on his body except for his ass is just kind of comical. Foley then went to the top rope, but Kane recovered, and he murdered Foley with a sick, unprotected chair shot to the head. Kane then hit him with a choke slam, then a tombstone, but he wasn't done yet. He looked toward the Undertaker, who gave his patented hand-across-the-throat gesture, so Kane clobbered Foley with two more brutal chair shots to the skull. I mean, seriously, these chair shots that Foley takes are goddamn horrendous every single time. It's a miracle the guy can even form a coherent sentence these days, as far as I'm concerned. Kane then decided to finish Foley off by tombstoning him onto the steel chair. Earl Hebner then went to count the pinfall, but Stone Cold Steve Austin was apparently hiding under the ring the whole time, so he then started attacking Kane before the three count could be registered. Strangely, as soon as Austin started beating on Kane, the bell rang, so uh, does that mean that we just got a disqualification during a fucking Hell in a Cell match? Someone explained that to me. Not only did The Undertaker interfere earlier in this match, but we also saw Kane and Foley use stairs, chairs, and fucking thumbtacks as weapons without getting disqualified, but apparently Austin's interference was just too much for Hebner to bear. Just when I thought Vince Russo couldn't top the stupidity of having a triple threat match end in a countout, I think he may have one-upped himself. But anyway, so Austin starts stomping the crap out of Kane, and because The Undertaker is locked out of the cage, there's nothing he can do about it. And then, because all of these chair shots just haven't been enough, Stone Cold clobbers Kane with one more, but the cameraman completely misses it because he's filming The Undertaker instead. That's rather unfortunate because a little later on in this segment, we can see that the chair shot actually ends up bloodying Kane, so nice job making that one count, camera guy. The Undertaker then climbs to the top of the cage and starts stomping the top of it so he can break through. He actually does manage to form a bit of a hole, but before he can drop down, the cage actually starts being raised toward the arena roof. 
we get a shot over to the control area where we see that it is actually Vince McMahon who is raising the cage, and Jim Ross says that the chairman is doing that in order to, quote, protect his investment, meaning he does not want The Undertaker and Austin to fight before SummerSlam. Austin ends up hitting Kane with two stunners, and he triumphantly heads up the ramp as we go to a commercial. When we come back, the cage has been lowered back down, and The Undertaker and Kane are both inside. Taker has a mic, and he says that Austin is nothing but a coward. Because Stone Cold sneak attacked Kane, by the time this night is over, he's going to have to come face to face with The Undertaker. Will we get our SummerSlam main event six days early? Stay tuned to find out. Up next, D-Generation X's theme song plays, but out comes China all by herself. We're told that she has asked for WWF Intercontinental Champion The Rock to come to the ring and confront her, and sure enough, he does. However, he isn't coming alone. He has D'Lo Brown, Owen Hart, and Mark Henry backing him up, and Henry is carrying a ladder with him. He sets the ladder up in a corner of the ring, and, on a related note, Jim Ross informs us that the Rock Triple H match this Sunday at SummerSlam has now officially been booked as a ladder match for the Intercontinental title. The Rock grabs a mic and starts climbing up the ladder, and he says that he knows why China has called him out. It was just a setup so DX could come out and jump him. However, The Rock then directs our attention to the Titantron, where we see that a forklift has been positioned in front of DX's locker room door, trapping them inside. Although, honestly, I'm not exactly sure how they're trapped, because we can clearly see that the door opens from the inside, so really they should just be able to walk right out. Come on, production team, what the hell were you thinking there? Goodness gracious. But anyway, the lesson we have learned from seeing that footage is that China is now all alone with four members of the nation. And so begins a segment which can best be described as incredibly uncomfortable. Take a listen as the star of Baywatch, in theaters now, proceeds to get downright creepy. Now back to you, honey. The Rock sees you looking at him with those bedroom eyes. I don't China, I don't know. That warm, fuzzy feeling you got in your stomach, don't worry about it, honey. It'll go away. It's natural. The Rock wants you to realize something. He knows that you're a frustrated woman. The Rock also knows that you're a very tense woman each and every time you get around The Rock. Kelly doesn't blame you for one single solitary second. So The Rock's come to one conclusion, China, and that conclusion is this. She's China, no you just need to get some. Huh? She's not an intern. Let's, let's show a little respect here, Rock. It looks like she's about to throw up. And China, honey, if you're lucky, about 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning, later on tonight, The Rock is just the man to give it to you if you smell what The Rock is cooking. What She's trying to, try to turn that ladder over Woo! and dump The Rock off. And China being restrained. What, China, put her down on her knees where she belongs. Tell you what, you look pretty damn good on your knees, China. It almost looks like a natural position. Oh, man, oh, man. China, it's been a long time coming. The Rock wants you to go ahead and look at him. Look at him with those hungry eyes that you have for The Rock. China, this has been coming for a long time. And The Rock is just the man to give it to you. So what he wants you to do is pucker up, baby. Shut your eyes and enjoy the magic of The Rock. Oh, she's been humiliated. Oh. They can't find the keys to the forklift. You gotta... Then again, there ain't no way in China The Rock means no way he would ever kiss a piece of trash like you. Oh. Man, she is so humiliated. However, how embarrassing. Mark Henry. We apologize, ladies and gentlemen, for the actions of these men. Pucker your damn lips and give that piece of trash the thrill of her life. We do not condone these actions, I promise you, but we are alive. Now, as you may be able to figure out from that clip, Owen Hart and D'Lo Brown are physically holding China down on her knees, and D'Lo in particular is actually pulling her hair back as well, so it's not a pretty sight. In fact, to her credit, China looks completely horrified the entire time, as you might expect, since this segment is built around the number one box office star in the world threatening to commit sexual assault on her. 
Hoo boy. So anyway, The Rock orders Mark Henry to forcibly make out with China, but thankfully, before he can do so, Shawn Michaels runs to the ring with a chair. The other members of the nation scatter, leaving Mark Henry alone in the ring, and then, because you probably sense the pattern by now, HBK levels Henry in the head with an unprotected chair shot. He then hands the chair to China, and, because he's Shawn Michaels, he dances on top of the announce table, which seems rather inappropriate considering the fact that a woman was almost violated against her will 30 seconds earlier. After a commercial break, we cut backstage where DX has finally been freed from their locker room, or perhaps they finally realized that they only had to pull the door instead of pushing it. They search the backstage area and the parking lot for the nation, but it appears that they've likely fled the arena by now. At this point, I feel like Triple H should just hand over video of that last segment to the cops, and he'll win the Intercontinental title by forfeit on Sunday. I mean, why bother putting your body through a ladder match when you can just lock your opponent away for three to five years instead? Not worth it. Our next match is Val Venus versus WWF light heavyweight champion Taka Michinoku, who is accompanied by his sister, Mrs. Yamaguchi-san, as well as Mr. Yamaguchi-san. Also, for you Shawn Michaels fans out there, it appears that he's actually joining the commentary team for the remainder of the evening. And once again, I must point out that HBK is a little too jokey for a guy who almost just witnessed a sex crime. And speaking of gross sex stuff, here's Val's pre-match promo where he references the local Philadelphia culinary landscape. Hello, ladies. You know, you can forget about Pat's cheesesteaks. And try the Big Balboskis, because I got more meat than your buns can handle. Neither the time nor the place for that one, Val. Also, it seems like a bit of an odd choice that we're getting Val versus Taka on the Raw before SummerSlam, when this match would appear to be a good choice for the pay-per-view card, since it's been built up for over a month. But no, instead Kai and Tai will face the oddities at SummerSlam, because, uh... Well, I'm actually not really sure why, so let's just move on. So Val and Taka look like they're on their way to having a nice little match, with Taka flying all over the place to start. However, Val then hits Taka with a powerbomb out of nowhere, goes to the top rope, and hits the money shot after only about a minute of in-ring action. Unfortunately for Val, before the referee can make the three count, Triple H enters the ring and smacks Val in the back with a chair. And then, stop me if you've heard this one before... Taka Michinoku receives an unprotected chair shot to the head, which, by my count, makes 812 of those tonight. It doesn't seem to make any sense for Triple H to interfere in this match, but he's obviously still angry about The Rock attempting to know his role and open China's mouth. Hunter then grabs a mic and says that The Rock crossed the line, and this Sunday at SummerSlam, he's going to be Triple H's bitch. Simple, but efficient, I suppose. And as for the Val Venus versus Kai and Tai feud, which has been built up over the past two months, this is the end of it, a one-minute match that gets interrupted by a guy who has nothing to do with either side. Again, I have to ask, why not blow this feud off at SummerSlam, since there's actually a story behind it, even though that story is pretty ridiculous? It would certainly make a lot more sense than having Kai and Tai face the oddities, and Val Venus face D'Lo Brown, both of which have zero build-up whatsoever. Vince Russo, you creative genius. At this point during the initial broadcast of Raw, we got a video of the Austin-Undertaker feud which was set to ACDC's song Highway to Hell, but as you might expect, the WWE Network edits that out entirely because they ain't paying for that shit. Too bad because it's actually a pretty well-done video. I'm sure you can find it on the interwebs if you are so inclined. After a commercial break, we get our next match, X-Pac vs. Gangrel. Early on, X-Pac hit Gangrel with a spinning heel kick, and Shawn Michaels said, quote, That's gonna knock a fang out or two, which I thought was a pretty good line. I have to say, on these occasions when HBK has joined the commentary team, he's actually been quite entertaining. I'm just saying that he may have missed his calling for those four years when he was retired from in-ring competition. Also, once again, just like last week, we saw Edge looking on in the crowd as though he was scouting Gangrel, so be sure to remember that for about 30 seconds from now. After about a minute and a half of a pretty good match, X-Pac hit Gangrel with the Bronco Buster, which seems kind of shitty because do you really want your new intimidating vampire character having someone else bounce his balls into his face repeatedly in only his second match on Raw? Seems like a poor choice. However, when X-Pac turned around, Jeff Jarrett had snuck back into the ring 
and he clobbered Pac in the head with a guitar, which had Don't Piss Me Off written on it. Triple H and China then ran down to ringside, and Christ, those two were getting a lot of airtime in the past few segments, so Double J escaped and headed back up the ramp. We're told that the X-Pac versus Jeff Jarrett match at SummerSlam will be a hair versus hair match, so either X-Pac will lose his greasy, scraggly hair, or Double J will lose his long, flowing blonde locks, which have come to symbolize him for the past four years. Frankly, I kind of wish that match could somehow end in a draw so that they'd both lose their hair, but that just ain't in the cards. Once Triple H and China help X-Pac backstage, Gangrel re-enters the ring, but he doesn't realize that Edge has perched himself on the top rope. Edge hits him with a flying clothesline and then starts beating the crap out of Gangrel for a while until a bunch of referees come to the ring and get between them. Interestingly, once the two men are separated, we can see that Gangrel actually has a smile on his face, even though he just got his monkey ass whipped by a weirdo in a trench coat. Jim Ross speculates that there may be something in these two men's past which would explain why Edge attacked him so violently. I wonder what that could be. Maybe Gangrel bullied him when they attended Transylvania State University together? I don't know. The possibilities are endless. We then quickly cut backstage, where we see The Undertaker wheeling a casket, which is presumably meant for Stone Cold Steve Austin. However, I can't help but wonder if seeing that footage gave HBK a traumatic flashback to the Royal Rumble when he fucked up his back by landing on one of Taker's caskets. Can you get PTSD from that? Someone ask a psychiatrist and get back to me. Up next, yes folks, at long last, after two straight months of mostly mediocre competition, it is now time for the championship fight of the Brawl for All, and your two competitors are Bart Gunn and Bradshaw. Now, I want to quickly remind you that Vince Russo has gone on record as saying that he specifically created this tournament because JBL was mouthing off backstage about how he could beat everyone on the roster's ass if they fought for real. Well, sure enough, JBL has now made it to the finals of the Brawl for All, so are we about to see him be proven correct in that statement? Let's find out. We're told that the winner of this fight will receive $75,000, while the loser will receive $25,000. And for the record, from what I could dig up in my Brawl for All research, those dollar amounts are actually correct and not just a work for television. These guys did indeed get a sizable payday for competing in this terrible tournament, so at least it worked out well for them. With that being said, even though the fights have mostly sucked, I highly recommend that you check this one out, and I'm about to tell you why. When the fight begins, you can see the contrast in styles, as Bart is much more measured, while JBL is just wildly swinging at him. How does that end up playing out? Well, Bart quickly nails him with a strong right, then a left, and JBL is down on the mat 20 seconds into the fight. To say that I enjoyed seeing that would be an understatement. However, JBL does manage to get back to his feet. The referee asks if he can continue, and JBL says that he can, so the fight goes on for literally four more seconds. As soon as the referee restarts the bout, Bart nails JBL with one hard left, then one hard right, and JBL is knocked the fuck out, landing face down on the mat like a bitch. Mauro Ronaldo, if you're listening, please be sure to go back and watch this segment, because I get the feeling that you're going to enjoy it. I certainly did. And so, your winner of the Brawl for All and $75,000 is Bart Gunn. Throughout the Brawl for All, Bart knocked out Dr. Death Steve Williams, the Godfather, and now JBL, and he was literally the only guy in the entire tournament who managed to score a legit knockout. Dr. Death beat Quebecer Pierre by technical knockout when Pierre quit the fight, but Bart was the only fighter to actually knock anyone to the mat. Truly a hugely impressive performance for Bart over the past few months, and it would seem like he is now ready to become a big star in the WWF. I can only wonder how soon he ends up working a program with the winner of the Austin Undertaker match at SummerSlam. A month, maybe two? I can't wait to see how he fares once he enters the main event picture. I mean, he's basically a made guy at this point. There's no way the WWF could fuck this up, right? Right? Eh... We then go backstage where Michael Cole is rocking a WWF denim jacket, yeesh, and standing by with Mr. McMahon. Cole reminds Vince that earlier tonight he demanded an answer from The Undertaker as to whether he would be Vince's friend or his foe. The chairman says that he's going to get the answer, and he's going to get the answer that he wants. And from there, we segue back into the arena where we can hear the chanting of the Druids. The camera focuses on the top of the ramp, but then, amusingly, we can see the attending physician run up the ramp and head backstage. 
Apparently, he stayed at ringside a little too long, checking to see if JBL was still alive, so we ended up having to scurry backstage while druids are chanting and the arena is being illuminated by blue lighting. Pretty funny stuff. Sure enough, once the doctor heads backstage, the druids do indeed emerge and wheel the casket down the ramp. Strangely, their faces are completely exposed, which kind of ruins their mystique a little bit. Once they place the casket at ringside, they walk right back up the ramp and head backstage, and then... The Undertaker walks to the ring. Taker grabs Mike and says he's going to challenge Austin face-to-face like a man at SummerSlam, and he won't have to jump him from behind like Austin did to Kane earlier. He then assures Stone Cold that Kane won't interfere in their match because Kane, quote, has his own agenda for that night. However, because Austin attacked Kane tonight, he made things personal, so he's asking Stone Cold to come to the ring right now. Instead, however... Mr. McMahon walks down the ramp. He walks into the ring, snatches the mic from Taker, and asks, Vince McMahon, friend or foe? The Undertaker extends his hand for a handshake, but before Vince can shake it, Taker puts his hand around Vince's throat. Sure enough, Vince then goes for the ride and takes a very impressive-looking chokeslam, so that's a nice little birthday present for the boss. As soon as that happens, Stone Cold Steve Austin then emerges from the casket, taunts the fallen Vince, and then turns his attention toward The Undertaker. However, while Austin is face-to-face with Taker, Kane then also emerges from that same casket, and he jumps Austin from behind. I'm not sure how Stone Cold didn't realize Kane was in there with him, but hey, Kane does have magical powers, so why not? Kane starts beating on Austin as The Undertaker stands by and watches, but Stone Cold eventually escapes, rolls out of the ring, and grabs a steel chair. I'm starting to think this episode of Raw may actually be sponsored by steel chairs at this rate. Austin attempts to enter the ring, but The Undertaker and Kane prevent him from doing it, so Stone Cold starts walking back up the ramp. In a pretty cool moment, flames then actually come up through the ramp to symbolize the fact that Austin and Undertaker are on the highway to hell six days from now, and in fact they did play the ACDC song on the original broadcast, but that obviously ain't happening on the WWE Network. Austin stares down Taker and Kane as the flames continue to rise from the ramp, and that is how our go-home episode of Raw before SummerSlam ends. Ah, but wait a minute. If you're watching this episode on the network, we actually get two and a half minutes of bonus footage called Extra Attitude from after the show initially went off the air. Austin walks back down toward the ring, and it appears he's going to go after Taker and Kane again, but instead he just walks right back up the ramp and heads backstage. Once he leaves, Vince McMahon then starts walking back up the ramp as well, and he yells at The Undertaker, so Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe come out to stand by him. However, Stone Cold then comes back out and proceeds to start beating the crap out of the Stooges. He throws Briscoe onto the casket, then he tosses Patterson into the ring, where Taker hits him with a chokeslam. Austin actually chuckles a bit at Patterson taking a bump, then he walks back up the ramp once again, and that is how we finally conclude. Lots more to discuss here, so with that in mind, let's take it to the wrap-up. Yo, I slayed MCs back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. A freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been thugging. Vinny Paz got more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas, out of my fucking mind. They won't let me back in. Cause I was down before the heights like Dusty Rhodes and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now the rockin' Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster pluckin'. Chickens when they cluckin'. The WWF fans for women where we fuckin'. The Ratings Recap Last week, thanks to the WCW debut of The Ultimate Warrior, Nitro absolutely crushed Raw in the ratings by the score of 4.99 to 4.16. But was there still enough interest in The Warrior this week to defeat the go-home episode of Raw before SummerSlam? Surprisingly, the answer was a resounding yes as Nitro's rating actually went up from the previous week all the way to a 5.19 while Raw ended up with a 4.68. And the Warrior did indeed show up on Nitro once again to cut a promo, but this time he kept it to only 8 minutes as opposed to last week's 14-minute promo. This week he did his usual trademark of running to the ring and shaking the ropes, and amusingly, if you go back and watch the segment, you can see he is completely out of breath afterward for the majority of time that he's talking. Clearly, he is not quite ready to get back into the ring just yet. This was also the promo where Warrior debuted his One Warrior Nation, or OWN, which is, of course, 
and W-O spelled backwards. How clever. But let's go further into the ratings for a moment here. Nitro was three hours at this point, while Raw was only two, but it should be noted that for the two hours when the shows went head-to-head on this night, the combined viewership set a new record for professional wrestling on cable television as both programs combined for a 9.72 rating and a record 10,610,500 viewers. Remember when wrestling was must-see television every single week? Yeah, this was that time. But anyway, that makes two straight victories for Nitro, and here's what you could have been watching over on the TNT network instead. Wrath defeated Mike Enos. Dean Malenko defeated Kaz Hayashi. Conan defeated Jim Neidhart. Steve Mongo McMichael defeated Scotty Riggs. Scott Norton defeated Rick Fuller. Lex Luger defeated Brian Adams. Chris Jericho defeated Kurt Hennig to retain his World Television Championship. And in your main event, Bill Goldberg and Kevin Nash defeated Hulk Hogan and the Giant. And by the way, Hogan and the Giant somehow lost when Goldberg pinned Kurt Hennig, who was not even in the match. Vintage WCW there. Now, you might be tempted to think that The Ultimate Warrior was the sole reason for WCW dominating the ratings again on this night, but this main event match ended up getting a 6.47 rating, which made it the fourth most-watched wrestling match in the history of cable television at that time. WCW had been getting their asses kicked by the WWF all summer long, but to their credit, they found a way to lure viewers back over to Nitro. How long will it last? We shall see. And now let's take it to... The Raw Synopsis For a go-home episode of Raw before a huge pay-per-view, I think this episode was a massive success. They've done a great job escalating the Austin-Undertaker feud, and they furthered that even more this week by finally revealing what they've been teasing for two months now, The Undertaker and Kane are indeed working together. That really adds another element to this rivalry, and to their credit, they didn't rush the angle. They were willing to make us wait all summer before paying it off right before SummerSlam. Smart booking there. Even though they lost in the ratings on this night, without spoiling too much, the WWF will certainly end up being very successful at getting people to buy the pay-per-view, but we'll discuss those numbers next week on the SummerSlam Raw Mega episode. In addition to the main event feud, well, you know the WWF is feeling the pressure to step up their game when we get an unannounced Hell in a Cell match where Mankind is promising to go to the top of the cage again. I know I damn sure wouldn't have been changing the channel when Foley said that. There was also some other quality stuff here too, like the fact that we finally got Shamrock vs. Severn, kinda, Bart Gunn knocking out JBL, and I guess we can give a little bit of credit to the WWF for that showdown between the nation and China, since it was presumably supposed to make me uncomfortable, and it did just that, but yikes, that is certainly not a segment that ages well. Frankly, I'm surprised we didn't get one of those warnings at the beginning saying that this show does not reflect the WWE's corporate views. But all in all, this was a really entertaining go-home episode of Raw, so I would recommend that you check it out if you get a chance. I mean, come on, the main angles throughout the show centered around Stone Cold Steve Austin, The Undertaker, Kane, Mankind, and Vince McMahon. For an Attitude Era show, what more do you need? And on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up. As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugebex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. And don't forget that next time out, New Blood Rising podcast host William Rankin will join the Raw Attitude podcast for the second time to discuss SummerSlam and the episode of Raw which aired afterwards. It's going to be fantastic, so you definitely will not want to miss that. And in fact, I think there's only one way to end this podcast and get you in the right frame of mind for the upcoming SummerSlam episode, so I'm sure you can guess what I'm going to play at the end of this podcast. Enjoy it, and I will catch you next time for our SummerSlam 1998 slash Raw mega episode with William Rankin. See you then.